Good morning. It is good to see each of you, and for those that are visiting, again, we welcome you. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you, and we hope that you can come back time and time again. To those that are new families with us, we welcome you. Uh, to each of you that are grandparents, uh, we wish you a happy Grandparents' Day. Uh, be sure, if you have your grandparents with you on this earth today, to be sure and give them a call. Tell them you love them, you appreciate them. Tonight, we'll consider the honor that we ought to give those that are aging, and we'll also consider an honorable way to age. So be sure and be back tonight as we study God's Word and God's will uh, at 6 o'clock on that particular topic. We continue the marvelous study of the crucifixion, the agony, and the glory of the cross. A professor invited several of his former students over to his house. As they began to visit, he slipped off into the kitchen and prepared some coffee, and he could overhear them in the other room. All the ones that had gathered there had done very well in the short time that they'd been out of school. One began to kind of complain that they were having a difficult time finding the perfect house in that perfect neighborhood. Another was saying how expensive car insurance was on a luxury automobile. And another piped up that they experienced the same thing on their nice boat that they had bought. And another had mentioned having to make that tough decision about which Fortune 500 company to go to work for. As he came back in, as a result of hearing their conversation, he served the coffee. Each cup was already poured. And there was an assortment of cups. He watched as each one reached for the cups. And then he asked them, Do you think anybody's coffee tastes different here? They realized, the teacher, that it was a teachable moment and they were eager to participate. And someone immediately said, No, our coffee all tastes the same. And he looked at that gentleman and said, Then why did you reach over to the far side of the tray for the fine piece of china? You do like the finer things in life, don't you? And you, you reached for your cup because it's larger and you love coffee. Oh, and I put this one on the tray for you. I knew that this was your sports team and you'd want a coffee cup with that logo. And he continued to explain to each one why they chose the particular cup. And then he said, what is life? They said, it's the container. And what's in it? He said, no, remember, our coffee all tastes the same. You see, it really doesn't matter what car you drive and what house you live in. It really doesn't matter what clothes you wear. Those are all temporary containers. What is of value is your life. And it's what you make it. He said, as you leave here tonight, you've already proven that you can do well by earthly standards. I want to encourage you to think about what you put in your extravagant coffee cups that you're collecting as you pass through life. When I read that story again this week, it really hit a thread in, in my thinking as I prepared for this week's lesson because for about the past five to ten years now, I've not been able to read that beautiful story that Jeremy has capably read for us without really giving some pondering almost every time I read it. What was the cup? 
You know, Jesus wanted this cup to pass from me. What was that cup? What exactly did he have in his mind when he was so determined to drink it, but yet also so wishing at that moment that he could pass it? Almost as if it's a coffee cup on a tray that he could say, no, thank you, Father. I would rather not drink that cup right now. And as I reread that story this week of the professor, it kind of dawned on me afresh from not a new angle, but just another way to think about it. It wasn't just the cup that the Lord wanted to pass on. It was what was in that cup. And what was in that cup was his life. What was in that cup was his death. What was in that cup was his blood. What was in that cup was the fact that he would be the atonement. He would literally become sin for mankind. You remember when James and John's mother came and asked, can my son set one on the left side and one on the right side? And first he said to her, woman, you don't know what you ask." But then he referred in the very next verse by saying, or the very next sentence, are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? You see, even way back then, he knew that cup was coming. And he wanted to know, even from those apostles, can you drink that cup? And you know what? They would drink that cup. They too were willing to give their life. They were willing to shed their blood for Jesus Christ. Friends, I need to wake up this morning and evaluate my commitment. I need to ask myself that just as Jesus was unwilling to pass that cup and say, no, thank you, Father. I need to make sure that I'm not willing to pass that cup and that I'm willing to make a commitment that would carry me all the way to my garden of Gethsemane. And no matter what the Lord would ask of me, that I too would be willing to say, thy will be done. You've not only heard the introduction to this sermon, you also in the last two minutes have heard the conclusion of this sermon. Now let's spread those two apart and let's see what makes that so powerful. I hope you have your Bibles open. If not, there'll be screens, but drop back to John and I'd like for us to look at just a few things that we could literally spend hours and hours putting all of this together. But as you drop back to John, the second chapter, you remember when Jesus was about to perform the first miracle. His mother comes to him and tells him that they've run out of wine. And remember his answer in verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? This is John 2 and 4. He said, My hour has not yet come. Be turning, if you will, to the seventh chapter. In just a moment, we'll read verse 8. What did Jesus mean when he said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. This was one of the early things of his earthly ministry. In other words, could it be from the very beginning, Jesus had in mind that he was approaching that particular hour? And if so, what would be the crux of that particular hour? It would involve the cup. And what was the agony of that cup? And how did he prepare himself to literally drink of it and to not pass it? Let's consider some of that as we look again now at John the 7th chapter. It was time to go to Jerusalem for the Jews to celebrate the feast. Remember, at this point, even his own brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah. Notice what we read in verse 8. He says to them, you go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. 
Now, he would end up going up to the feast, first kind of undercover, not letting anyone know who he is, because he knew the turmoil that was going to be created as he continued to speak and preach in such a powerful fashion and continue to work miracles. This brings us to the 8th chapter. And as we look in the 8th chapter, consider verse 20. In the 8th chapter, beginning at verse 13, he has told them who he is and that he can witness of the fact that he is the Messiah. But one witness would not stand. There had to be at least two or more. And he says, even the Father that sent me can witness who I am. And this really stirred them up. And notice verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Go over now to the 10th chapter. Notice the reason he says that no one laid hands on him is because the jealousy and the envy of the chief priest, the scribes and the Pharisees was growing so strong that as they would accuse him of blasphemy and as they would grow so jealous of his great and grand following, they wanted to have him put to death. Notice as we read in the 10th chapter and in verse 31, another occasion, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. But notice 39. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. What do we see from this? Each time we see that everything that Jesus was doing was on a timetable. He knew that his hour was coming, but he was controlling this hour. In the same opening here, drop back in John the 10th chapter to verse 17. Now to fully appreciate this paragraph in John 17, you remember the parable of the shepherd and the sheepfold? And you remember that sometimes sheep had hirelings. In other words, a hired servant that would look after the sheep. And it's in this paragraph that he says, if danger would come, thieves or a wolf would come that the hireling would run because he didn't want to risk his life to take care of sheep that didn't belong to him. But in this paragraph, he identifies himself as the good shepherd. And the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. You remember in the Old Testament, David described himself as a shepherd, that he would stand between his sheep and a bear, even if it was with his bare hands to kill the lion or the bear. You see, it was David's sheep, and David was a good shepherd. And so now he's talking about his sheep and what he would do for his sheep. And notice verse 17 and 18. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, speaking of the crucifixion, and I have power to take it again, speaking of the resurrection. This command I have received from my Father. For a quarter, we're studying the crucifixion. If I haven't fully grasped what we've just read, I cannot fully appreciate the cross. No one drug Jesus to the cross. He gave Himself. He laid down His life. Each of the other times someone would have taken Him by force, 
They did not because his hour had not yet come. He's controlling the timetable. As a matter of fact, in Mark the 14th chapter in verse 1 and 2, notice what he says. After two days, it was the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread. And notice this. The chief priest and the scribes sought how they might by trickery and or they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Do you see what their plan was? Their plan was, we have to kill this man. But there's Jews from all nations gathered in Jerusalem during the Passover. And look, he has a great following. We saw that triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We don't want to stir the people up. So wait till all the people leave. And wait till there's just a few of us. And then by trickery, we're going to take him and we're going to have him put to death. But see, their timetable was not during the Passover feast. But you see, Jesus was the Passover lamb. So on his timetable, which would be Passover, he would be offered. That's why we read in John the 13th chapter in verse 27, where he took and he dipped the bread and he gave it to Judas. And notice, he says, now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, then... Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. What's the point here? The point is Jesus was in control. He told Judas when to get up and to portray him. Even though the previous arrangement had been that it would be after the Passover feast. But Jesus made sure that it was on his timetable. Look with me now to John the 12th chapter. In John the 12th chapter, we see during this last week, a group of the Gentiles, a group of Greeks come to Andrew because they want Andrew to take them to Jesus. And notice what is said here in John 12 and 23. It's a powerful statement. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. You see, all the other times, the hour had not yet come. The other times, it was not the time to give up His life. But now, He says, the hour has come. Now pause here for a moment. How do you see Jesus viewing this hour? We see a man boldly going before Pilate, or before Herod, or even before the Jews. But friends, this morning, our concentration is very simply upon the moments before that. The moments before the betrayal. The moments that led him to the Garden of Gethsemane. Even now, please read with me verse 27 and see how Jesus would describe this time. His hour has now come. And he says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus, what are you saying here? And he's saying, I'm distressed, I'm troubled. The idea of this cup, I'm feeling the weight of it. Notice the humanity. Notice the wrestling. Can I cry out? Save me from this, Father. I don't want this. No, thank you. 
You can keep your cup. I'm not thirsty right now. I don't want to drink that cup. Notice the commitment and the courage that says, I can't say that. That's the very purpose I've come to this earth. Why? Because as he's lifted up, which is the same language as Moses, when the people were being bitten by the poisonous serpents, and we read this same language referred to in John 3 and 14, leading to John 3 and 16 of Jesus being lifted because of the love that Jesus and God has for the world. And you remember when the poisonous serpents bit, God did not say, I'll remove the serpents. He told Moses to lift up that serpent on a pole and everyone could look and live. And now Jesus is using that same language. Sin is not going to be removed from this earth. But anyone that wants to live can come to the Savior that's lifted up. That's why in verse 31 he says this is judgment. Friends, the great victory was won at Calvary. We don't wait to the day of judgment to find out who's going to win, Jesus or Satan. That's why Jesus speaks of this hour. That's why it's so crucial. And even though we're 2,000 years removed, we have to take everything in our life and go back to that point in time. That's why in reality, you and I probably have it much easier in our faith than all those that live before the cross. Friends, we can read in the Old Testament and we can see the story before the cross. We can read the New Testament and we can see the cross. And we can see everything unfolds about the scheme of redemption. We now fully understand the grace of God as it's revealed to us. You've heard me say it before. But it's like that fifth grade kickball team. What if you could choose which side knowing which side was going to win? Friends, that's why in 31 he says, now is the judgment of this world. He's not saying, whenever I come back again, he's saying, now. That's why Paul can cry out after, after 57 verses about the resurrection. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in Romans, the seventh chapter, when he describes the internal civil war that goes on, where with the mind, we want to serve God, but with the flesh, we're drawn to carnal things. And he discusses that, and finally, toward the end of Romans 7, he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this death? And the answer is, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus knew the cup. And He knew all that was at stake. For Him, the pain, and the dread, and the distress. But He also knew all that was at stake for our spiritual well-being. In Hebrews, the second chapter, in verse 9, he points out, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every one of us. Now notice, it didn't say that he was crowned with 
glory and honor because he tasted death. Notice, his hour came before he actually died on the cross. He was crowned with glory and honor before he was ever crowned with thorns. What's the point? I miss a huge aspect of God's grace if I don't understand that the very fact that God would give Jesus the right to die in our place is one of the tremendous aspects of God's grace. And so when his hour had come that he had lived a perfect life and he could be that perfect sacrifice and he was glorified before his death upon the cross. What marvelous grace that God shed giving us that plan. Now, as we conclude this, go back, if you will, to Mark, the 14th chapter, which is our text for this morning. Notice the distress that we read in verse 33. Notice as it says at the end, he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Notice in 34, he says to Peter, James, and John, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. How do you picture it? I don't guess it's really as important to me how you picture it or even to you how I picture it. But friends, we have to get some kind of vision of this. We have to understand if we're ever to fully appreciate it. What does a Jesus look like that is distressed, that is troubled, that even is exceeding, that means beyond limits, exceedingly sorrowful even to death? Have you ever heard someone in such great pain of sorrow that they say, I wish I could die? Is that what Jesus is saying here? No, I I really at this point don't want to drink that cup, but I do wish that I could die. This is painful. When we look over into Hebrews, the fifth chapter in verse seven, the Hebrew writer tells us there that it was in this setting that Jesus gave the vehement cries as he suffered in obedience. What does a loud, boisterous, vehement cry sound like? In a quiet garden of Gethsemane. Or when we read in Luke, the 22nd chapter in verse 4, the same account except Luke's account and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Or when we read Isaiah, the 53rd chapter in verse 3, and this is where it ought to really crush us in humility. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 4, surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrow. I wish I could die. The vehement cries, praying prostrate on the ground with, with sweat dropping off of him like you sliced a cut and blood was just dripping. And you say, there's a man that's full of sorrows. There's a man acquainted with grief. Jesus, why are you grieving so much? And he says, don't you get it? I'm carrying yours. If it wasn't for mankind, I wouldn't know this grief. I wouldn't bear this burden. 
It's David Shannon's sins that he cried about and that he yelled about and that he sweated about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps all of us have seen two weeks ago on the news Brenda is an assistant principal in Ohio. Two weeks ago, she altered her daily schedule, and in so doing, she forgot that her two-year-old was asleep in the back seat of her Mercedes SUV. She drove to her school that morning and had meetings all day long, and someone came in at three in the afternoon yelling, your daughter, your daughter's in the car. She threw everything and began screaming. She ran to the car and unstrapped her baby that was blistered and not breathing. She took her into the air-conditioned school and began CPR. As the medics arrived, they said they took over and they saw Brenda just lay in the floor and cry and wail. And when she's being questioned by either the officers or the DA, The pictures that we've seen on the news shows a woman who cannot even sit in her chair. As she talks, she lays against the wall. She lays across the desk. She does practically everything except sit. Why? There comes a grief so heavy that all we can do is wail. We have no strength to stand We have no strength to sit. We have to offer cries. Jesus, why did you do it? Why did you take that cup? I would suppose he realized the cost of that cup being physical crucifixion and he dreaded it also the fact that 2 Corinthians the 5th chapter and 21 tells us he became sin for us and sin separates us from God no doubt that's got to be a part of the reason why on the cross he yelled out my God my God why have you forsaken me He had never been separated from God the Father in any of His eternal existence. And now He became the sacrifice for sin and was separated. And the Hebrew writer in the 12th chapter in verse 2 tells us, and notice notice the two phrases, He endured the cross, but despised the shame. He'd never been shameful before. There had never been a reason for Jesus to duck his head. There had never been a reason for him to say, I I was wrong. And now he literally becomes sin. He hangs on the cross. Now please take this in context. He hangs on the cross because he deserves to, because he's sin. Now we know he doesn't deserve to because he was perfect. But if he's going to become the sin of mankind, he has to hang on that cross. It's the curse of death. And the shame that's associated with that, he had never known, had never experienced. 
And so if we could have one summary of Gethsemane. What is it that you and I can learn about Gethsemane that would change our life? More in addition to just the fact of everything Jesus did for us. We'll all face our Gethsemanes. And what I need to see loudly and clearly. I need to hear it more clearly than I can hear the yells. I need to hear the prayer of a man whose life was being pressed. And that's what Gethsemane means, the oil press. His life was being pressed and the summary of Gethsemane is this. Not my will, but thy will be done. We don't know all the things that's going to press us in life. They have and they will. It'll come or it already has come. And our only answer can be, Father, your will be done. I won't pass on that cup. Your will be done. Next time the going gets tough, people become hateful, enemies grow bold, situations seem impossible. What do we do? Thy will be done. You've never been baptized into Christ for the missionary sins. Will you allow the Father's will to be done today? Maybe you've become a Christian, but somewhere along the way you haven't lived like a Christian. Will you allow the Father's will to be done today? If we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.